Welcome. Welcome back, everyone, to a brand new episode of my weekly podcast, Writing Through the Pain. This is your host and Winnipeg multidisciplinary artist, Ingrid D. Johnson. Thank you, everyone, for joining me as I discuss, explore, and discover what facing and slowly healing after the trauma of childhood sexual abuse looks like in several areas of life, beginning with my childhood years and into my teens and then slowly into my adult life. Thank you for choosing to go on this healing journey with me as I share pieces of my story from my upcoming book and also interviews with other people that are connected to my story. Would you like to do more to show your support for this podcast? Then please, subscribe, leave a tip in any amount, or become a monthly sponsor by contributing $5 a month or more through our PayPal link. That link is www.paypal.com forward slash paypalme, all one word, forward slash ITC sponsorship. In return, you will receive a quarterly newsletter, a download code to my album Visions and Dreams, and 10% discount off all new In the Closet Productions products and services. Every dollar you contribute will be used to produce inspiring original music, live music shows, speaking engagements, this podcast, and other creative projects that helps to draw awareness to the impact of childhood sexual abuse. Thank you so much for your wonderful support. My story, part 20. Emina Sinjel, aka Peanut. <laughs> when I first met Emina Sinjel, aka Peanut, it was 1996. I was 21 years old, living with Isaac Omega on Capel Street and working at the convention center parking lot downtown. In my off time, I was also pursuing my modeling career. So it was also the year a local modeling agency that was representing me convinced me to attend my first modeling convention in Calgary, Alberta. At the convention, I remember walking around in a room full of modeling hopefuls, reading callback sheets, hoping to see my callback number on one or a few modeling agency callback lists. Callback sheets are basically lists modeling agencies create and post up to communicate their interest in meeting with a potential model for their agency. They were golden opportunities to further your modeling career with the right agency behind you. Opportunities to have a one-on-one interview with a modeling scout that could launch your modeling career. I was one of only a few black female model hopefuls scouring the callback boards for my registration number next to interested modeling agencies, hoping to find at least one interested in me. It brought up a great sense of insecurity and a fear of rejection with every second I did not see my registration number to an, next to an agency's name. Then, out of nowhere, God took mercy on me, and I spotted my first and only callback on the callback sheet. I had one callback from a modeling agency based in my favorite city, New York City, and that was enough to send me jumping for joy over the moon. Standing next to me, poised and going through a list of her own callbacks with laser focus, stood five foot eight and a half Emina Sinjel, a tall, slender, confident Eastern European woman around my age with short, dirty blonde hair. Yes, I got one, I shout loudly, feeling very grateful for the one sign of interest that modeling could be more than just a pipe dream for me. How many did you get? I asked Amina, still standing next to me, ignoring the small voice inside my head, suddenly telling me that I do not even know her well enough to be asking her such a personal question. I got 14 callbacks, she says, with an arrogant tone and a coldness that could rival the North Pole, before walking away like I was lucky to have gotten any of her time. It was during that moment I made up my mind about Amina, never being someone I would want to be friends with. She was a snobby, arrogant girl in my mind, and I had no time for her brick wall face. I couldn't imagine ever liking her enough to call her my friend, I thought to myself. But boy, 
was I ever wrong about us not being able to be friends? And who knew that someone you couldn't stand at first sight could become one of your closest friends in life, a person in your life that you love and have known for over 20 years? Life is so crazy sometimes, and people are never what you seem to think they are when you first meet them. I'm so glad that our first meeting and my bad impression of her didn't get in the way of our wonderful friendship that I hope to have for the rest of my life and that I still have today. The following interview comes with technical difficulties that I must warn you about that prevent the best possible audio experience for the first part of our interview because it's two parts. However, I hope you will still sit down and listen to the video, listen to the audio despite the quality of it. Please set aside your expectation for super clear audio for this portion of the interview. I messed up and I'm sorry for that. But it doesn't negate the fact that this interview is an honest conversation between two very close friends from two different walks of life who also have suffered from trauma, albeit different forms of trauma that impacted our adult lives. Then stay tuned after you've listened to this episode for part two of our interview, where I hope to have better audio for you, better, clearer audio. So enjoy and I hope you get something positive out of the interview. And if nothing else, you enjoy how open and honest and carefree we are with each other as friends who have known each other for 24 years. Okay, until next week, thank you for your patience and your understanding. And now, the interview. I wanted to introduce my close friend, Imina Sinjel. Okay, you pronounce your last name because I always get it wrong and you know that. <laughs> yes, okay, good. Only you can pronounce it that way. Um, but I call her Peanuts. And in my book, she will be my peanut. So Peanut's here today to talk to us about um, just trauma. Like we both have been friends for over 20 years now. And the one thing that we definitely have in common besides being two women that pursued modeling and was passionate about modeling was just having kind of similar but different backgrounds in the way that we had intense events happen in our childhood that really shaped the people that we became and that we are today. And so I thought I would bring her on the show just to talk a little bit about her journey, her healing journey, just the things that she's experienced and how traumas impacted her life and uh, just how we met and our relationship and, you know, stuff like that. So I'm going to start off first with you tell me from your perspective how you think we met because I know I have my version of the story and I'm telling that in my book, but I want to hear your version. Okay, yeah. go. First of all, Ingrid, well, thank you so much for having me today um, speak with you. And um, really, it is a privilege being being friends for over 20 years, 24 to be exact. Yes. And we <laughs> to share that experience with you. And um, yeah, thank you for having me on your podcast. My but pleasure. Yeah, how did we meet? This, this many years ago. So I think our journey and friendship started um, both of us pursuing modeling careers. Yes. So my reflection is that we were both going to an event. Faces West. A model convention. Oh, wait, no. This is after yeah. I met you initially at Faces West, but go on. <laughs> yeah, Faces West. Yeah, the modeling convention was called Faces West. Mm -hmm. I think we were introduced um, to, to a mutual friend of, uh, friend of ours. Another yes. girl that was also just doing modeling. Maureen. Uh, yeah. Maureen, yes. And, um, yeah, so, so all of a sudden, just like five or six women found, uh, we girls, we found <laughs> ourselves in this car. Yes. <laughs> happy-go-lucky. And I was so excited. <laughs> I've never seen so many girls in the same, you know, it was like a really adventure, adventure for me, and I was so excited to be there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, I remember us meeting at Faces West, and I remember not knowing you, and I was super over the moon because they had, remember, they had these boards with all the uh, agency callbacks, 
And I remember looking on the board and, and looking for my name and not seeing my name for a while. And then all of a sudden, American Models, and then it had my name next to it. And I was over the moon. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be that model now. And I was so excited. And I looked to my right, and there you were, tall and slender and beautiful and looking at the board. And I was like, hey, how many callbacks did you get? And calmly, you looked at me, and it's like, I've got 10. And I thought, or, or see, and I was like, oh my gosh, so snobby, whatever. <laughs> I was like, I'm out of here. Yeah. And then yeah, we met. You didn't seem excited. You were just very composed and calm when you relayed yeah. how much you got. And I was like, oh whatever and then when we met again and my friends like oh I planned we're going on our trip I got a couple other girls to come along and you know I met this one girl and her name's Amina and I was like oh, Amina okay she's like well I'll meet together before the trip because we were all taking the van together and it's like okay and then you came to my house and I was like oh my gosh that's her and I was like <laughs> started talking and you let down that wall that you had up and I was like wow she's like very emotional just like me she's passionate just like me and then I was like okay we can be friends <laughs> but before that I was like brick wall <laughs> I think your story I think your story is accurate and one of the things that brings memories from that part of our life journey is that you of modeling can be very competitive. Yes. It can be very stressful and it can also be competitive. And so if you didn't receive um, as many callbacks, yes. which for viewers means that you receive an invitation by an agency, the prospective agent, to sit with them. Um, look at your pictures and if you're a potential girl that they will sign on, mm -hmm. it can seem as a failure or defeat. Like you're not good enough. So yeah. I definitely. Well, for me, I was excited just to have the one because I was worried I wasn't going to get none. So one for me, and it was New York, and that's all. I always just wanted to model in New York. So for me, it was like I won the lottery. But then I talked to you, and it was just like you were like, I have 14. And I was like, uh, whatever. I got the one I want. <laughs> so... <laughs> but I was like, okay. Later, I was like... This is just my initial reaction, and we always have our first impressions of people. They're not, like, impressions that are necessarily true of others, but depending on your own experience of meeting other people, you might, like, have your back up against the wall. But I was not, I wasn't the most competitive person, so for me, I just wanted to share my good news, and I thought, well, yeah. I'd tell you, even though I didn't know you. <laughs> so I guess I wanted you to be super happy for me. <laughs> yeah. And for me, it was the opposite. I was excited that you were excited, but like, I'm very competitive. Yes, <laughs> I know. I could tell. <laughs> I'm not realizing, but okay, um, here's other girl and smile. You know, the same way. Yeah. So, thank you for giving me the second chance in the friendship. Yeah, of course, it was worth it. So it's it's good. It's good to know that first impressions, you can't always rely on them because you never know that person could be your bestie for the next 24 years. Or sometimes you can trust your first instinct depending on the person. So you just have to know it's wisdom. So I'm glad that we like got past that or I got past that <laughs> and we became friends. So um, speaking of now modeling, since we were both into modeling for quite a few years and that's like basically the glue that held us together when we first started being friends we're all about the modeling and going to near constantly what drew you specifically to modeling um well for me um modeling has been a childhood dream it's almost like an escape fantasy you know like coming from coming from back home from former Yugoslavia and we didn't grow up or I didn't grow up in a you know abundant financially abundant um family household. So, for example, I wore clothes that were handed down to me by my cousins. And so for me, the modeling sort of um, aspiration to, to, to become a model was um, I would watch um, I would watch uh, runway 
shows on MTV. Oh, cool. I don't remember. Yes. <laughs> Back in the early 1990s and late 80s. So for me, that was just so beautiful, such a magical world of clothing and like extravaganza. And it's something that, that, that I kind of lost myself and I dreamed. And I'm a very creative person. So I do remember as a little girl, as a, as a early teenager, I would put the big thick encyclopedia in my head. <laughs> oh, it's a walk and straight. In a walk straight. Yeah, okay. Like, yeah. like the girls in the, in the show. Yeah. So I've that for many, many. <laughs> and you do have an awesome walk. Like if you ever see... Peanut walking down a runway is very graceful and very confident and like your eye is drawn to her walk. She has a certain grace about the way she walks down a runway. So I remember how good your walk was. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you see that there are a couple of, um, I don't know if you remember, but there's a couple of blurbs, you know, like there, there's a couple of incidents I do remember walking down a runway where things don't go as planned, you know, yes. well, Yes, you were very good in. I too had my own special walk, had a little bit more, I don't know, I guess more uh, funk in my step, so mine was more bouncy. <laughs> I do remember, I do remember your beautiful Like, for instance, I remember um, going to New York and visiting the agencies with you, which is something we, you know, tried to do to get ourselves out there and show our portfolios. And I remember I went to Ford Models, and they were, you know, very nice. They talked to me. They looked at my book, and they said, oh, you're very exotic looking. And I, I just know for me, being a woman of color, I don't know how other women of color feel, but when someone says exotic, you right away think it's like you're a strange animal or something that they've never seen before, and it's like... Okay, exotic is just, I don't know, it's code for something, and I don't think it's a good code. So I was never really happy with that, but I did get a card to Ford um, Models in Los Angeles. And I did call them, and I remember talking to them, and, and because they the Ford in New York referred me. And I just remember them saying, oh, okay, how tall are you? And I was like five, seven and a half. And they're like, okay, you're a little bit too short for us. And I remember going through my modeling books and seeing like Caucasian model after model, five, six, five, six and a half. And I was like, okay, no, it's not that I'm too short. You know, what you're really saying is, oh, you're very exotic. So I put that together as, okay, my color is really hear the stumbling back. There can only be one or two or whatever black models, I guess. So I was pissed off about that. I didn't really appreciate that part of yeah. the whole pursuit. You say, like, about the height, definitely modeling. Um, just to clarify, there's only, like, 1% of women in the world mm -hmm. that will really move into this industry, very specifically catered and geared to very tall and slender women. Yes. And a very unique, unique uh, body shape basis. Design. So there's only like 1% of the women. So it's, it's, a, it's the highest duration, and like there's a lot of pressure. If you really don't have that body type, mm -hmm. you know, if you're a little bit more plump or more just like a gymnast like, or have a little bit more of a muscle tone, like I was told to stop uh, track and field and running in high school. Oh, so that your, your muscles be long and sleek and not so. Oh, Peanut, you've disappeared. Oh, there you're back now. Yeah. Yes. I think she's only five seven. Five six, yeah. 
and Elite, Leticia Casta. See, I studied modeling so much that I remember the names of certain models and their heights to go along because that's it's like school. You study fashion, you study the supermodels and why they made it, what's so special about them. But I remember Leticia Casta, Casta was only 5'6", and she was more voluptuous in her form. She made it. Like, I just saw this trend of, okay, Five, the shorter models, it's harder to get in, but I just kept seeing this pattern of all the shorter models were, again, Caucasian models. So I knew I would have the stumbling block of being, okay, I was a little bit short. I wasn't 5'9", but I'd, I also was black. So those two would make it almost, like, extremely impossible. And that also took time before I like web like and Kyra Banks's uh, show American Models, which I wanted to be on. Yeah. And also when I like what made it, I don't, I don't recollect her background and whether she's Sudanese or what origin yes. she is, but, but she's very much, much um, darker in Yes, nature. very unique so, looking. Very unique looking. And it's like that's when it became sort of popular. But that's, we're talking now in a late, um, early 2000s, yeah, right? Yeah. Late 1990. So that's before our time, and and also before the American Next Top Model. Yeah. Yes. When American Next Top Model showed up, we were like, well, well, where have you guys been? Yeah, I was so mad. I even auditioned, but by then I was like 30, so I knew. Chances are, no. I mean, I still was very fit still, but I was like, now you show up, Tyra. What were you doing? <laughs> It was hard before, and remember the time we went to New York and we went to Giovanni Versace's place after shortly after he was murdered. Yeah. And we were like, "Oh, we want to go!" Like, because we like that's how much we were into the fashion industry. <laughs> that we were like, "Okay, let's go to his more his his place that he owned here." And was it in New York? His that they had where you can come and sign in his memorial book and stuff. And we thought it was so exciting. We went to the fashion cafe. Because that's um, all the top supermodels owned it together, including Naomi Campbell and uh, uh, Cindy Crawford, and uh, and who else was was part of that? Uh, Kate was it Kate? One of the uh, I can't remember all the the models, but they were like the like the the, the the top. It was like six of them that were best friends, six or seven of them, and they all. Well, yes, and they all went into this business, hard rock cafe, a fashion cafe, or whatever. So that was a go-to to see on our trips to New York because th these were all things we were aspired to, right? Yeah. So definitely a special, special time. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking of that, tell us um, about your modeling adventures. I know you went a lot further than I ever did in modeling. You got opportunities to go to Japan and also to model in Miami. So just tell us a little bit about your adventures and what it was like for you and any challenges you might have faced as a woman modeling by yourself. Yeah. So like, as, you, as you mentioned, yeah. So the first, um, first couple of after after you and I met, right, shortly after I got an invitation um, to go to Japan. So my first contract was in Japan, in Tokyo, Japan. And this was to a local a local agency. Mm -hmm. And then this was sort of a first time away from home, away from the family, right? Aww. So I spoke with the family together, with the mom and my sister. And like everything we did, it was together. And I was only 19, like just transitioning to 19. And I remember my first big trip overseas. Okay. And, um, yeah, and, and I was selected for this particular market, why Tokyo, why Japan, is because this market, the Asian market, was very geared towards this natural next door, quote unquote, next door girl look. Oh, okay, I girl next door. Like, yeah. What is, Italy. what would you say is the prototype for their idea of the girl next door? Is a certain hair color, eye color, height, what? Yeah, it's just more natural look. Uh, more natural look, like brunette, very wholesome, big eyes, but very light skin. And so a lot of things that I have been uh, contracted to do was, um, was um, what is it called, catalog work. Mm -hmm. So we were in Japan, I was in Japan and around um, winter time, so we would be shooting photo shoots and clothing for spring. So, I mean, Japan is not as cold as Canada, but you can see Mount Fuji and it was relatively cold because you're always shooting yeah. in the opposite. Oh, okay. When I was in Miami, yeah. I was wearing fur clothes from plus 35, 40 Celsius. Oh, my goodness. But, <laughs> so, was, so, definitely the physical challenges 
an aspect of it. Um, the days are very long. So what would happen typically in a days of a model, you will wake up early, like around five or six. Um, so I remember while I was in Miami, we would shoot the photo shoot like early sunrise because that's a really nice natural sun. So you really have to be perky and, and with, with great energy. And similarly in Tokyo, we started day very early because you had about 12 to 13 appointments to go to, to different um, to different locations. You know, like it would be whether they're shooting um, this point um, a bridal catalog or a commercial for a car or another commercial for toothpaste, whatever that is, you will have several appointments. So you're literally in a van with your um, agent driving and taking it from place to place. It's a very physically intense work and exhausting. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. Of, it's very intense. Mm -hmm. And um, and also being like, not that, but there's just so much that's required of you and also emotion. One of the, I think one of the interesting experiences in Japan is cultural. So this is kind of like what also drew me, and we're going to talk about it later, my adventures in modeling and my curiosity for culture, it really drew me to my next step in life. Okay. And the culture. So in Japan, the woman is supposed to be very soft-spoken. And so one of the challenges, or one of the things that I noticed that I wasn't getting as much work, uh, and this was a feedback from an agent, so they thought I was very angry. And how that came about is I'm very um, expressive in nature. Mm -hmm. So I talk with my hands and my face. And I was raising my eyebrows. And culturally, in Japan, raising your eyebrows means that you're angry. Oh, oh! so you had to really be aware of the cultural norms. You had to learn them. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, so that was one of the things. So I then, in university years, started culture and communication. Mm -hmm. That was really fascinating. And that experience just stuck in, stuck in my mind. Another thing when you talk about cultural norms, I'm of Eastern European background. So I dress, the way I wear my makeup, the way I dress, very sort of exotic, out loud, out there. And I have to dress in the tones of pinks and blues. I cut my bangs. She just looks very much softer. You know, like in the early 1990s, I remember when you and I used to go out and party, <laughs> I used to keep my hair or like, make it look really, really wild, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. You're more reserved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very disciplined. Um, did you go through any kind of like uh, that, you know, I guess in a way is cultural shock and then you learning to adapt to that as a woman, did you experience anything that made you feel uncomfortable or kind of like, you know, back home, this would never be like where women, did you feel it, it, women were viewed differently in Japan as opposed to when you're in Canada or even in the States? So they're always, always learning.
in my other modeling experience, for example, in Miami, um, I, I experienced just the way I was working. There, there was a lot of competition. Okay. You have to be in competition and you have to be, you have to, not that you have to, but there's a lot of expectations. You'll be schmoozing with the executives, with people in the industry. Um, there's a lot of like, partying, like everything. Everywhere that we went, that we were invited, obviously there was as much as free alcohol, a lot of other things, but drugs were easily available. Mm. And, uh, my upbringing, like I was brought up um, in a very conservative, conservative way, um, and a really good moral value was a context. So for me, my mother never had to worry about me, whether I was straight, whether something would happen to me. But I've seen other girls younger than me. So I was 19, uh, 21 when I was in, in um, legal drinking age when I was in the United States, in, uh, in, in Miami. But I would see girls 15, 16 that were really struggling with their self-esteem and would be drinking mm. excessively, would be just partying with these men, you know, be promised um, different contracts or different yeah how did you shield how did you shield yourself from those situations You weren't delusional about about yeah. like what what it had to offer. You knew that it would be an opportunity that could lead to you know a lot of financial gain and opportunity to travel. But you weren't delusional about the whole industry and also the the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. Yeah, I really got to eat all for myself, and yeah, you really you really found it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so thinking of that, you've mentioned your background, your culture, your upbringing. So tell us now more about your story. You're like, I know I'm an immigrant, you're an immigrant. And <laughs> I know in my more immature days, to tease you, I was I always call you the immigrant, but in a sense, I'm an immigrant too, so it was kind of stupid. But I wasn't doing it to be mean, just to bug you, but we're both immigrants. I'm from Jamaica, and you're from... Yugoslavia. Yes. Okay. So, and, and I'm not gonna make you say that because I remember in our youth we would always joke. You know, you would always say, try to say, "Oh, you're from Yugoslavia." Yeah, I was never good at pronouncing, <laughs> enunciating things like that or pronouncing the name. So I was like, and I'd always mix it up. I'd be like, "She's from Croatia, right?" I'd say that, and you'd always yeah, like. I was 16 at a time and we immigrated to 
Congratulations. That's wonderful. What was your experience? You said, okay, so you lived in a refugee camp. Um, what was that experience like for you? Like, what were the conditions, the living conditions? Yeah, so the living conditions, they were, um, the living conditions were, I would say, livable and decent, which means you had your basic things in necessity. Every family got uh, their own room. Good. Got one room, and you had a communal kitchen. Three mm -hmm. meals a day. It was very much structured. Okay. You had a freedom to. It keeps funny when I think about it now. Given the current situation in Canada and COVID, we were actually quarantined. So the first two weeks you had to quarantine because you were doing some um, basic testing for tuberculosis, HIV, AIDS, and whatnot. Oh, okay. So we were quarantined. So then once we passed that initial period, so you were able to, to freely move forward and. Also, my mother was able to secure a part-time job. A lot of people like work in a camp, different things. If they were skilled in repairing something, they would get a job in an area of the camp that they could use machinery or whatnot. And my mother got a job in a in a in a, a factory mm -hmm. in the town, close to refugee camp. And that provided a little bit of extra income uh, for family because the food, um, although we received. Um, Although we had meals in the refugee camp, it wasn't what you got used to at home. Like the meal was the meat was only served when the international delegation came to visit, right? So it was to make them kind of look good. Exactly. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was like keeping up a pretense of something. Exactly. And so my mother, like any other people, would just get little jobs here and there. And that might even provide for a little weekend trip to, to another city. And I remember also one of my earliest experiences, and my mother's experiences, was going to farmland. So they, they have great, um, great um, plantations. Okay. And so we would go fruit picking or grape picking. Oh. So they would come and they would pick us up, you know, a bunch of guys, ladies, and kids, and then my mom would take us. And we were so excited at the end of the week when we got paid. You know, like we would take that all the money that we got and we would buy ourselves maybe a little t shirt on the market or I remember buying the cassette, the blank cassette, <laughs> and then we would record our song. Oh, wow. So tell us a little bit more about the war that you escaped from in order to end up in the refugee camp before immigrating to Canada. Like that, I'm guessing that that, well, not guessing I'm your friend. So I know that that is a big source of the trauma from your childhood was that war, right? And most of us, I mean, I left Jamaica, I came here, but I wasn't running away from a war. It was just more of a new, op a better opportunity. Although seeing snow was my trauma a little bit, but for you, it was very serious and very scary. The situation you and your family had to flee from. So tell us about that. And, you know, was there family left behind because of that? Yeah, so, so we, uh, so everything was very stern for my family, and so we did not live in a war zone, okay. um, because obviously there were different parts of Yugoslavia that got really affected differently, like in Bosnia, the war was four or five years, and people were mm -hmm. literally in the middle of a siege. We were very lucky, so we were very lucky that we lived in a different part, and what was happening in, in that part of the Serbia was more ethnic cleansing. Certain families, you just saw that they were not there anymore, that it, we, it just wasn't safe for them to be there. Oh, crazy. And very sudden. My mother just um, told us a couple of days before, you know, it's no longer safe, we gotta go. Oh. And How did you feel say, hearing that as uh, you, you were like 16 at the time, right? 15, going on. 16. So how did you feel hearing that, that it wasn't safe anymore and you had to go? I was, really, I was 
It's, it's interesting how you, how like, it's like your childlike res resilience took over instead of like recognizing that this is a scary situation. It was like exciting. I'm going to get to travel. Yeah. Wow. It's like Pan's, Pan's lab Labyrinth. When I think, when you just said that, I thought of that movie of Pan's Labyrinth. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. It's kind of like that mentality of like you're in a dark, dire situation, but to the kid that's in that story, it's this like mysterious, wonderful adventure. So go on. Uh, I don't mean to interrupt, but I just have a quick question. You said ethnic cleansing was happening. So how does how did how would that ethnic cleansing have affected you and your family? Well, for example, so what was happening um, in early nineteen ninety two or nineteen ninety three? I don't remember. Um, we were close to um, we lived close to a um, compound. Okay. Compound. Mm -hmm. But nothing. You could hear the truck. Army truck. Yes. And during the time, there was a lot of turbulence. There was a lot of uncertainty. What's happening in neighboring Croatia or Bosnia? They had the, the government had consensus. Mm -hmm. And then they would they would knock on people's door and ask what ethnicity you are. And oh. if there's an emergency, they would give us instructions where we would leave, where we would seek shelter. Okay. And near neighbors, basement, or so and so. I remember the trauma was that we slept. There was a couple of nights that we actually were instructed to just sleep in clothing and if anything were to happen. You're ready so to go. My whole life, it's just like, I'm always, I'm never settled. Like, even when I move to your apartment and your place, I don't unpack, I don't settle because there's been just this constant survival of living in fear mode. So that's oh, okay. like one of the impacts. When that did, when that started to sink in for you, how did that manifest in like your behavior and your moods? Well, it's just, you, you feel depressed, you feel sad, like you, you, you left everything behind. And but the only thing that gave me constant uh, and comfort was that there were other people from different cultural backgrounds that were going through the same thing. Okay. Right? Yeah. And even when we came to Canada, a year later when we arrived in Canada, we we started. Because of that. Okay.
you know, like playing soccer or, or playing certain games like squash or anything in a gym class because those games were culturally not even existent. I did not know anything about those games. Yeah. Speak English. So I just never felt like I truly, really uniquely belonged anywhere and I lost my identity. Oh. So how did you how did you deal with that your your like loss of identity? How how I cope with it is, is luckily I was in a class with the English ESL class, which is English as a second language, where we had teenagers from other parts of the world, whether mm -hmm. it be from China, Iran, Pakistan. So it was like a little United Nations, and my teacher would share the stories about travel. So it was like another magical experience where I can really connect with people from all around the world and really see that they're all different and they're all alive somehow. And you know, just feel like I belong. Like Good. I truly, truly belong and I feel comfortable and I feel safe. Good. So that's you. He was like, wow, this is really nice. Nice girl, and she also hearing your story because over the years we got to know each other and yes. share our experiences. I really felt loved, cared for, and comforted in knowing that there's somebody else hmm. going through similar uh, traumatic experiences. Oh, I'm I'm very honored that I made you feel that way, and <laughs> I definitely felt a connection to you too. Hearing your story and just um, hearing your sense of not feeling like you belonged anywhere, and that you like always felt the anxiety of, you know, this is not a stable, I'm going to have to move because growing up in foster care too, from 12 on up, I was always moving. And so I had that sense of where I didn't belong anywhere and um, I didn't fit in. I was always felt a little quirky and odd that way, but I met someone like you and my other really close girlfriends as well who you know you kind of just have the shared experiences and each of my friendships I noticed there's some kind of childhood trauma that kind of reshapes you and you know kind of impacts your adulthood too so you have that common or camaraderie of like you know we've been through stuff and it's not not everything's butterflies rainbows and tulips you know we've survived and overcome, hopefully, you and know? It feels like, to me, it feels like, like there's hope, like there's this other girl, like you, my friend, and like, oh, she's been through some experience, and I'm like, oh, there is hope, like everything will be okay. Yes. I'm a shared experience, yeah. Definitely. And how would you say your childhood trauma from being a refugee and fleeing your country and never going back home, how do you believe that shapes your life now as an adult, like your relationships, your friendships, your working relationships, you know, you as a person, how do you feel it's impacted your life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so, for me, it's like, I feel like I'm more reluctant to trust people mm -hmm. in my in my in my interactions. Um, I feel like that I'm constantly in some sort of like, survival mode. Okay. Like in terms of like that this world is not a safe place to be. Yeah. Right? Like people can be proven facts for me to be safe around them, just emotional, not physically. I don't have any physical feelings of stress or recurring nightmares or anything like that, although that existed at the beginning of my journey. A lot of that has happened earlier. Mm -hmm. traumatic stress and symptoms that experience. But now it's more about you know, like how do I how do I relate to people and like I, I noticed to myself that I'm only more open to certain people, like from different cultures. Yes. Like I gravitate towards those people. And then especially aware in my dating patterns for people. Like with men, but the men that I choose to date is usually a different being white Caucasian, North American, Canadian. To me like there's no commonality, there's nothing in common with them that's not safe. How could they possibly understand me? You know, how could they possibly understand and love me through who I am and what I have gone through, but there's nothing in common. Mm -hmm, okay. So I don't need to give that opportunity a chance. Okay. 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 And do you, like, did it impact? Did it in like impact your journey as a model? Like, I know for me, 
even though I was really into modeling, one of my big thing is, what if I do get an opportunity to go overseas and live there and model? I'm like, I don't know if I could do that. It's like so far away from home. I was always very kind of like afraid of the big bad world. Like I would never be the girl to hop on a train and travel by myself through Europe. I've never, I like to be around another person where I have someone to talk to and I feel safer that way. Whereas you have always been a person that's okay to relocate. Like I'm talking to you years back, you're in Costa Rica. I'm talking to you now, you're living in Toronto. Like you, you're a person who probably go to Timbuktu and be fine all by yourself. So how do you feel, how do you like feel your past helped you to be that type of person where you're okay taking off all by yourself? Yeah, it's so, so it's, it's interesting when you say that. It's like my nature, I, I love people and I love these opportunities, but it didn't come without a cost. Every single time that I moved, if I look at my, my, my past experiences of how they shaped me where I am today, you know, is there is this, this constant fear and anxiety, very heightened sense of anxiety that I, that I live my life. Mm-hmm. That's what happened, right? So I was jumping to this situation because my heart was pulling towards, I say, pursuing education in Costa Rica or so and so. But then I was, I was experiencing intense feelings of anxiety, not being able to sleep, not being able to perform. Um, one of the things that I experienced in my professional career is is anxiety and deadlock. But for some reason, that would just get me all worked up to be more so on a physical level, not physically ill. Oh, okay. So I've been sort of coping, you know, coping in a different coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. And traveling has definitely been my trigger point. Every time I moved somewhere, you know, I cried or I have attached myself with a group of like minded people, right? Um, it's been very stressful. Uh, it's been very stressful to, to, to pursue a career in the international field, which, um, which is something that I had um, pursued after my education. And see myself constantly being affected at the effect of it, of being triggered. Okay, because you were like kind of gridlocked by anxiety? Yeah, so much anxiety that I'm like, I can't perform, I can't be. Okay. Can't. Was it triggered? doing this to myself constantly not feeling okay with myself. I'm okay. constantly missing my family, not being okay because I realized I need that familiarity. Okay, so, so the trigger... So, so you'd I be... about today, actually. Because why did you choose to live downtown Toronto? Because it reminds me of sort of back home. I live in this historic neighborhood of core downtown, um, historic district where there's streetcars that remind me of a charm. In oh, okay. In my childhood, and there's a big church right next to me, and I could hear the bells, and it immediately takes me to something familiar back home. Yes. It's like a lot of comfort. Yeah, so you don't feel completely all by yourself. You feel like you have some kind of like essence of family, even though your family is not in the same city as you, or or I'm not in the same city either. So yeah. And that's the thing, like, no matter where you've gone, we've always stayed connected as friends anyways. Yeah. So, yeah, so I've developed certain coping mechanism over years to not really stop me from living life, but I just became more mindful, like, what um, what gives me that anxiety? Like, where am I triggered? Yeah. Right? And especially with moving, I recently moved to London, so every time I have to move, like, that's one of the most uncomfortable things I dislike. Oh wow! I didn't know that. That it just like brought you back to that initial having you having to flee in the middle of the night with just one suitcase. Wow! It's amazing how something from your childhood can like still ripple throughout your adulthood and. You think, oh, something happens in your past. Sometimes people, when trauma happens, oh, just get over it, move on. That was back then. But it influences everything that you are in your adulthood. And if you ignore it, it will come out in a negative way and kind of like give you kind of deficit in your personality and in your relationships. But if you deal with it and you're aware of it, then you know exactly how to have more positive coping mechanisms to deal with the triggers as they come up and to know that you're safe. That's not then this is now. 
So um, we're getting closer to the end of our, because I think this might end up being a two-part interview, because you hear that interesting. <laughs> so um, I think we should end off on this question, and then next time we can pick up kind of from this point. Um, tell me how specifically um, trauma has kind of, impacted your educational pursuits like i know you have your masters now right and what is your masters in yeah so that's a really interesting question yes i did the, i have a bachelor's degree uh in double major in conflict resolution studies wonderful oh, yeah. <laughs> which makes it makes sense and then yes um, and then um several years ago i did my master's um in uh, gender and peace building and peace education Awesome. At the University for Peace in Costa Rica. Wonderful. But, yeah, <laughs> I think it really ties back to my origin, to my early experiences of trauma and being being in a war, and you know, going through refugee experience, being being somebody who has gone through that experience. Is that would really draw me to to really study and understand. Um, you know, understand where the conflicts come from and why did it happen in my country. Yes. Right? That, so that became like a mission of yours from your education? Yeah, so my mission, my one of my mission was is to help other refugee and, and immigrant children and youth like just really feel, feel safe. Like my whole past two decades has been dedicated to, to rush part of my life has been dedicated to children of war. And just really being there for them, um, understanding what they're going through, and serving as a role model in my community in Winnipeg. Or do a lot of work, work in the after school, after school program, or different organizations that revolve around um, newcomers and immigrants. Yeah. So it was me giving back that hope and that um, resilience to the youth that, that they can overcome any trauma because I can really closely And did you find when you were like pursuing your education um, and taking the courses and doing the papers and stuff, did you have any like episodes of where anxiety was an issue for you going through school? Yes. So through my, I constantly remember, one of the things I think that really helped me through that is that I was raised in a very That's a lot. Yeah, 
and then you kind of like want to hide from it like where oh i'll just get some more sleep or you know <laughs> just so you don't have to think and feel bad about not yeah, doing what you're supposed to do yeah there's an overwhelming sense of uncomfort and anxiety that's that it was it was almost like it physically ill yeah so you felt it definitely like I know for me going to university I had to I tried Red River College I tried University of Winnipeg but I found I couldn't really focus and my mind was always like wandering and stuff so school just didn't it's like that was one of the end results of the trauma for me so uh, I know for you anxiety was a huge thing so doesn't it's like mush and your body retains all of that and anything that is remotely similar to the type of stress that you would have felt in that traumatic situation if it's triggered it did the body doesn't know and your mind doesn't know the difference between that was way back then to now it just feels like it's fight or flight so it starts to do crazy things like you get insomnia you can't focus it's just you get anxiety attacks all the time so yeah education for like school system I know you made it through and it wasn't easy you had a lot of struggles and and it took a while but you finished and I know for me that it's just like it was a nightmare for me with school I was more a person who learned on my own for me, like I really, what really worked for me is having a structure. I got a couple of professors that really got my back. Like they were invested. They saw this girl that I was not giving up. Like the dream of education and to become somebody was <laughs> so much bigger for me than my limitation or anxiety or whatnot. So I really had a great counselor in the University of Winnipeg. So I even I was about to be kicked out of the university. I flunked three courses and I got extensions, you know, mm -hmm. handed my work. And I, you know, and I made it to the university. And it was because of Barb, you know, because she was the one who really, you know, not, I couldn't say held me together, but like, she would say, this is what you need to do. Like, these are how many courses you still need to graduate. And like, I believe in you. So my counselor and I would have like monthly or semi Part of her success too. Well, yeah, but it definitely transferred into my adulthood where I see the same experiences coming up again. Like I'm really good at the
I'm excited to do part two. This has been wonderful, and I'm very honored that you chose to do this interview with me. And uh, I know it'll help whoever hears it because there are a lot of things that I'm sure a lot of people can, you know, relate to, especially since we're in COVID now and people are probably having a lot of mental health issues and, you know, it's not easy being cooped up. So having your trauma come out in those situations where you can't really go out and socialize and, and ignore that you have to face yourself and your past, you know, it's going to be very informative and helpful to other people. So thank you so much for doing this. And I look forward to part two. I hope you had fun too. Did you enjoy this recent episode? Then stay tuned for a brand new episode of Writing Through the Pain, My Story Continued, every Wednesday night. Tune in next week, where I will share more of my story dealing with the impact of childhood sexual abuse. Well, as usual, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your colleagues, family members, acquaintances, and friends. After all, you never know who this podcast might speak to, inspire, uplift, inform, or help to break their silence about an incident or incidents of childhood sexual abuse in their lives. To leave a message about an episode of this podcast, or to become a potential guest on the show, please message me at anchor.fm forward slash Ingrid D. Johnson, all one word, forward slash message. Thank you again for listening. Thank you for supporting my mission. Good night and God bless you, my friends.